Good morning. I'm just kidding. That was my British accent because she just announced. Anyway, y'all know I'm not British, right? Everybody, because I said y'all. That's the first clue. Um, but I am going to introduce our guest in just a moment. Before we do, I just want to say hello and welcome to the story. I'm, uh, I'm Eric Huffman. I'm the lead pastor here at the Story Church. And um, we have a lot going on at the Story right now. And if you're uh, new here and uh, hoping to find community, you know, Houston, as big and awesome as it can be, it can be a very lonely place. If you're looking for community, I, I know you can find that here, regardless of where you're at on the religious or uh, faith spectrum. Uh, our mission is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, and so we try to take a lot of the typical barriers you'll find um, in a lot of churches or denominations out of the way just to make it about Jesus, and I believe you can find that meaningful connection here. Um, I want to say uh, hello, not only to those, those of you gathered here, those of you joining us online, whatever platform you're on, thank you for being here. You're part of the stories, online campus, also our community over at Timbergrove in the Heights is tuning in uh, to this morning's message as well. Um, among the many things we have going on is our big move, and I'll just say a very, very brief word about that. If you weren't here last week, we announced that we're in the home stretch now of our move um, from this facility in the museum district, which has been a wonderful haven for us um, since January of last year, to our new, um, more permanent home uh, in River Oaks on uh, Westheimer Road. Um, we think we probably have six or seven Sundays left here in this facility before we move over to start worshiping in the gymnasium of our new facility at 3223 Westheimer. And, um, and so lots of work is going into this. And as you can imagine, it's just really taking a ton of resources to, to make this sort of move happen as we maintain all three of our um, properties that we've been given by God. Um, so if you can help us bridge that gap, we announced last week we've, we've just started this new initiative called Prepare the Way, and this is sort of just a bridge campaign to help us uh, make this move and get started on the right foot financially as we start this new, very exciting season of The Story's Life together. You can find out more just by going to thestory.church, which is our website, and if you want the specific page to the uh, campaign, it's thestory.church slash prepare. Um, and we're looking for supporters to step up between now and December 31st just to help us get there. Thank you in advance for your generosity. Y'all are always so amazing in your faithfulness, and I thank God for you. All right, uh, let me introduce today's uh, special guest. I have hoped and prayed to have him join us in person for years now, ever since really 2013, when I came to faith in Christ in 2013, after years of pretending um, you know, it's not just the one-time decision that, that sort of makes a Christian. I mean, that's obviously where we become Christian and where we become saved is in that initial decision. But there's more to developing um, a cogent sort of uh, robust faith in Christ. And Justin's work, uh, Justin Brierley's work, was just absolutely essential to me after I discovered it in the days following my conversion to Christianity. For over 17 years, Justin worked for um, uh, a show that he created called The Unbelievable Podcast. It was also a radio show by the same name. And for over 17 years during that time, he would welcome guests, not just Christian guests, even though he was on Christian radio. If you can imagine Christian radio in the United States actually having atheist guests and agnostic guests and you know, um, really highbrow scientists and, and you know, some, in, in some cases, anti-Christian voices to have an honest conversation. Justin did that for 17 years. And because he was such a even-handed, fair moderator of these debates and conversations between Christians and non-Christians, Justin earned an audience worldwide of, of not just Christians, but folks who were genuinely curious about truth and meaning and all of those deep questions that we ask. And so, 
Um, for 17 years, his audience continued to grow and grow until early, earlier this year, Justin decided to step away from Unbelievable and uh, to pursue some other powerful interests like the Reenchanting podcast. If you're a podcast person, I highly recommend Reenchanting. He's also been hard at work writing and, um, and rolling out his new book that really is a summary of everything he learned while interviewing those people I talked about, some of the best thinkers in the world for 17 years. It's called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Um, some of you who are real fans of the Maybe God podcast, our podcast in-house, um, will know that uh, not only have I been on Justin's show and, and he's been on ours, he has, over the summer, served as a guest host for a handful of episodes for the Maybe God podcast. And I was looking at the numbers of those episodes that he hosted, like with the likes of Calvin Robinson, a British cleric, um, who's very, uh, you know, a, a very prominent figure in the British media and now worldwide. Um, also, uh, a tribute episode to Timothy Keller, an interview with Andrew Clavin. These episodes that, that Justin co-hosted or, or guest hosted are now some of the most popular most listened to and watched episodes of Maybe God's history, even though they just came out. So I've done like 95 episodes, and Justin uh, comes along and does five, and he's more popular uh, than me, which I'm not envious about at all. <laughs> I'm trying not to be, because envy is a sin. That tells you something about Justin's approach and just how winsome um, and faithful he is in his approach. And uh, for years now, we've wanted to have him live and in person, and he has... Um, made that happen today. God has made it happen, I guess, and Justin has been faithful to that. After speaking at the Lanier Library up in Cyprus area on Friday night to a huge overflow crowd, and before going to Dallas for another conference this evening after he's done here, Justin Brierley is here with us today, this morning, all morning, uh, all the way from the UK. So help me welcoming to the front, Justin Brierley. <laughs> Wow, thank you. Thank you so much, Eric, and, and thank you so much for the warm welcome that myself and Noah, my 18-year-old son, he's just there giving you a wave, um, have, have received. It's, uh, it's so good to be with you here at the Story Church in Houston, and thanks to everyone who's watching elsewhere as well. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. We've had a, an amazing welcome. We've, we experienced last night proper Texas barbecue, which was, was amazing. I tell, they tell me Houston is the place to be for that kind of stuff. So uh, we feel like we've really got to know you guys a little bit already. Um, I guess you could say that we share so much in common. Uh, I often feel like there's a really good relationship between the US and the UK. Um, but in some ways, you know, there's a similar picture actually when it comes to the church. Some people say that the UK is maybe 15, 20, 25 years ahead of where the US is when it comes to being a post-Christian culture a sort of more secular environment. Because if you look at the statistics, they're not hard to find. You'll see that both in the UK and in the US, there is a, a decline in church going, actually. Um, lots more people, especially of a younger generation, describing themselves as nuns. That means simply non-religious. And the question is, I suppose, is that the end of the story? Is that the direction things will keep going? I've invested my life really all my adult working life, in engaging the post-Christian culture that we find in the UK, and which I think we're starting to see coming in in the US as well. Because I don't believe that God is finished with the church. 
I believe actually that the Christian story has a resonance that can capture people again, even in our post-Christian culture. And that's really why I began The Unbelievable Show. It's a show that aims to bring people together for dialogue and debate, both Christians and non-Christians. And I had the privilege of hosting, as Eric said, for over 17 years, some of these amazing discussions between people on both sides. And over the years, we were not just a podcast and a radio show. We did a lot of video as well. You can see on the screen there a conversation I hosted between uh, a well-known Canadian psychology professor called Jordan Peterson, um, opposite a British atheist psychologist, Susan Blackmore. They were debating, do we need God to make sense of life? And that's really a question that I'm going to be asking this morning as well, because what I've discovered in the course of hosting all of these conversations on science, faith, the Bible, history, ethics, is that actually, despite the post-Christian culture we're living in, the Christian story can still stand on its own two feet intellectually. That actually, I believe the Christian story continues to make sense of so many things for people in our culture, whether they realize it or not. In many ways, the show began during the height of what was then called the new atheism. I don't know if that phrase means anything to you, but essentially new atheism began in around the mid-2000s and was a very strong anti-theistic, anti-religious form of non-belief. It was essentially a, a very media-driven phenomenon. There were a lot of slogans. There was a lot on the internet. It was fueled by the blogosphere. But it also had a kind of a, a public face. There was even in the UK in 2009, an atheist bus campaign. You can see a picture here of a, a London bus bearing the slogan, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. It was a really interesting moment in our culture where this very evangelistic form of atheism was at the fore. I think it came in the wake of things like 9-11, from concerns especially in the USA around the encroachment of religion, on politics and education. I think that was some of what drove the new atheism. But it was interesting to see how it developed over time. It drew a lot of thinking people to it, people who thought, yes, this holds the answers to life. There were a set of famous thinkers who were kind of the figureheads of the movement, sometimes labeled the four horsemen of new atheism. You can see them on the screen there. Uh, from right to left, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and perhaps the best known of all, Richard Dawkins, a fellow countryman of mine. He's a biologist. He wrote this best-selling book called The God Delusion. And that kind of encapsulates the way that the new atheists thought about religion. Belief in God was a delusion. But more than that, faith was bad for you. Those were the two sort of central claims of the new atheism. But I thank God for Richard Dawkins and for the new atheists, because actually, in a culture which was largely agnostic or apathetic in the UK towards Christian faith, they actually woke people up with these questions, with these bus campaigns. I think actually it had a revitalizing effect on the church as well, because it forced us to pick up some of our theology and apologetics books in order to be able to meet some of these objections and questions that the new atheists were asking. And in the end, the new atheism itself didn't hang around for all that long. I think it started to peter out in the mid-2010s. There were a number of reasons for this. One of the reasons, I think, is that the new atheism itself started to look quasi-religious, ironically. 
because it had its sort of four horsemen as the sort of uh, high priests of the movement. It had its sacred texts, the books they'd written. It had its orthodoxy as well, scientific materialism, that all that exists is matter in motion. And if you went away from that, if you diverged from that, you were a heretic in their movement. In fact, a lot of people who started to come on my show during that new atheist phase, we had a lot of those bombastic debates between the new atheist types and these Christian thinkers. But I noticed the conversation start to change over time. More and more atheists coming on were distinguishing themselves from this movement, saying, I'm not a Richard Dawkins type of atheist, you know. And I noticed that a lot of the secular thinkers who started to make an appearance were also asking different questions. They weren't dismissing Christianity out of hand as just a fairy tale and a delusion. They recognized the value that it had brought to the West. They didn't necessarily believe in it themselves, but they weren't dismissing it either. People like the person I mentioned on screen, Jordan Peterson, he came on the show not as a Christian, but if you heard him in discussion on the question of whether we need God to make sense of life, you might have thought he was a Christian apologist. So fervently did he defend the idea that we need something like God to make sense of life. And I think we do need something like God to make sense of life. I think the reason in the end why the new atheism faded from view was that ultimately, once they had torn God down, they didn't have anything to replace God with. Science and reason alone cannot buy you meaning, purpose, and value. People need something to live their lives by, not just a negative statement about reality. So for me, it was important to recognize that actually, we didn't, in a sense, stop being religious when the new atheists came along and tried to get rid of the Christian story. In fact, that religious instinct was there even among the new atheists in the way they went very evangelistic with their form of non-religion. But it's also true of us today. We can't get away from the idea that we need something to live our lives by. We need a story to live into. And it's, you know, just a happy coincidence in some ways that this is called the story church, but it's very central to my message this morning. I believe we are creatures who are made to live in a story. In fact, there's a psychologist called Jonathan Gottschall who published a popular book called The Storytelling Animal. And the main message of that book is that all humans need a story to live by. He said, we as a species are addicted to story. Gottschall says that, in fact, if people feel like they don't have a narrative, a story that sort of makes sense of their life, if they come to believe that they're just bouncing around chaotically in a meaningless universe, that actually leads to a lot of anxiety, to depression. We need to feel like we're part of something, that we're part of something that makes sense of who we are. And I agree with Gottschall, but not just from a psychological perspective. I think we've been created by a God who, who placed that deep within us, that idea that we need to be part of something. We need to be part of a story that makes sense of our life and who's actually given us the opportunity to be part of a grand and meaningful and beautiful story. And what I want to share this morning is how do we share that story in a world where there are so many other competing stories, if you like? I know that you've been in the Book of Acts recently here at Story Church, and today I'm going to draw some lessons from a moment later on in the book of Acts, Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul goes to Athens in Greece. It's sort of the seat of learning and intellectual debates. And 
as he goes into the city, you've got to remember that Paul is a devout Jew by background. And he comes into this city full of idols. And he's personally distressed by this because idol worship was anathema to any Jewish person. Yet here he is, and I'm going to pick it up from verse 16, where it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, and so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Sounds a bit like my social media timeline. You know, everybody just wants to tell or hear something new. Something's never changed in that sense. And I think in, in a way, the Areopagus was the kind of the social media influencer place of its time. It was this rocky outcrop in the shadow of the Parthenon, which was the temple in Athens dedicated to the goddess Athena. And this was the place where the philosophers and the thinkers would gather to debate the ideas of the day. And here's Paul with his opportunity to present the story of Jesus Christ to them. The next part will be on the screen as well. It says, then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I really love Paul's approach. He could have taken offense. In fact, he was deeply distressed by the idols in that city. But he didn't go in and berate the Athenians and say, I can't believe you're worshiping all these idols. No, he chose to find common ground. He recognized that even their idolatry showed that they were searching for something. He said, I see that you are highly religious in every way. Well, look, here's some common ground. And he goes on to use that ground to show them that what they've been looking for in the unknown God that they're searching for can be found. That God is closer than they think. Now, you could fast forward 2,000 years to today, to modern Houston. You, you might say, well, look, we, we no longer live in a culture where we've got idols on every street corner. We're a very post-Christian, post-religious culture. And that would be true at one level. But in my view, the idols have just changed form. I've been to the malls in America. There are a few idols still. We just don't call them the goddess Athena anymore. In fact, I would say even if we think of ourselves as a very post-Christian post-religious culture. In fact, religion hasn't really gone away. It's just manifested in different ways. The last time I was in the US in the summer, I, I tried to keep fit and do a bit of jogging. And I was jogging around the local neighborhood. And I noticed some yard signs in front of people's houses. And they intrigued me. I'll show you what one of them looked like. It's a yard sign, and it says, in this house, we believe that, and then follows a number of ethical statements. It says, Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. 
Now, what is this? This is basically a creed. A creed is a set of beliefs. It's a, it's a statement of faith. And of course, in the Christian church, we have historic Christian creeds. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And I was fascinated because looking at that sign, I realized, you know, this is another creed. This is a set of I believe statements. Now, I don't know what the religious affiliation is of the people inside the house, but the chances are they probably don't really think of themselves as all that religious. In fact, they might think religion's one of the problems with the world today. But the funny thing is that by putting that creed on their front lawn, they're doing something highly religious. It's, it's kind of the equivalent of a Christian maybe putting out the Ten Commandments on their front lawn. It's a set of statements. It's a, it's a faith. You know, and I'd be tempted to say, if I saw a sign like that, as I have in some of the shops and in, in the commercial district here in Houston, dear Houstonians, I see that you are highly religious in every way, because actually that religious instinct runs deep. Now, now to be clear, I'm not using this example to criticize the sentiments on that sign. Of course, there's a political aspect to that, but I actually think a lot of those, those beliefs, they go back to something quite deep in Scripture. The idea of human dignity, and justice for the oppressed, and compassion for the vulnerable. They tend to get now, of course, expressed in highly politicized ways in our culture. But the point is that whether they realize it or not, yes, modern people are still kind of religious. And, and why is that? I think it goes back to what I was saying, Jonathan Gottschall's point. We're, we're storytelling creatures. We need something to believe in. We need something to make sense of our lives. We need to see ourselves as part of something bigger. Now, the Christian story is a story that for generations and for millennia gave that to people. It was a story that said, you were created by a God. You are not an accident. You are here on purpose. Your life has a meaning. And even though the world is tough and has gone, gone wrong in all kinds of ways, that God came to be with us, to show us how to live life, to die for us, and to show us that we could be reconciled to God through his death and through his resurrection, and that we can step into a new kind of eternal life, and we can be part of the biggest, grandest story ever told. And that story, the Christian story in a nutshell, kind of was what gave people their sense of identity and their sense of purpose and meaning. And it was a story that had a profound effect with all the, the rights and wrongs of Christendom over 2,000 years there has been an extraordinary impact of that story across our world. But as we've seen that story gradually fade from view in a post-Christian world, the problem is people still need a story to live by. And I think G.K. Chesterton, a Christian thinker, he predicted it well about 100 years ago. He said this, when people choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing, they become capable of believing in anything. I think Chesterton saw what was coming because, like I said, we can't live without some kind of story to live by. And in the absence of the Christian story, the religious instinct just gets channeled somewhere else. You know, many people get religious about political causes today. For others, it may be some social justice issue that becomes sacred to them. There are certain sexual and gender identities that people see as sacrosanct. That's their meaning. That's their purpose. That's the thing they live for. In its activist forms, you know, there are, again, quite religious symbols, rituals, flags, and things like that. But this isn't just something on the progressive left. Oh, no, the, 
The right has it as well. They have certain political mythologies, certain saviors of America who will come and, you know, even after being martyred and potentially thrown in prison, they're going to burst out and save, save the U.S. dream. These are articles of faith. These are stories that whether they're on the left or the right, people are investing their lives into. And the problem is none of these stories can do the job. They're all too small. The only thing that will actually transform our culture is the original story. All these other stories, they're banging up against each other. They're creating what we call now the culture wars, basically. It's become a politicized, tribal culture that we live in. I think that all of those smaller stories, we're beginning to realize they can't sustain us. They're running out of steam. Just like those Athenians in Paul's day, people are searching in the wrong place. They're looking for something. And what they're searching for, maybe it's not as far away from them as they thought. Blaise Pascal put it this way, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. It's, we sometimes call it the God-shaped hole. We try to fill it with other things, but only one thing, this Christian story is ever going to really fill that hole. So let's go back to Paul's message on the Areopagus. He tells his audience, look, I know you're very religious. I can see that you're searching. Well, look, let me tell you, there's a God there that you're looking for. Picking it up at verse 26, he said, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Again, I really love Paul's approach here. He doesn't berate the Athenians. He doesn't tell them how wrong they are. He tells them, you know, you're on the right track. You're groping around. You're searching for something. Let me tell you, maybe that thing is closer than you thought. Maybe God is waiting for you after all. And I think we need to tell the same to our culture. It's not our job to kind of take sides in these culture wars. It's time to tell the culture, I can see what you're looking for. And there's an answer to it. There is a story that can make sense. You're groping around in the dark, but look, what if God is closer than you think? The small stories you're telling yourself, they're not going to satisfy you, but there's a bigger story that can make sense of your story. And I think we are running out of steam on those small stories. They're, we live in this prosperous, materially wealthy, technologically advanced age, and yet we're more depressed and anxious. Suicide rates among young people are the highest they've ever been in the Western world. What's going on? It's because these stories aren't working. I think there comes a point where people kind of run out of those resources, and maybe, just maybe, they're ready to hear the original story that shaped the world they live in. And in this new book that, that Eric kindly mentioned, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, I, I detail how many modern secular intellectual thinkers are coming to similar conclusions. People like Jordan Peterson, who I mentioned earlier, but many others who are identifying a meaning crisis in the West, that our stories aren't working anymore. And they're pointing people back in all kinds of interesting ways to the original story, the Christian story. I find that very encouraging. When I was speaking at the Lanier Center on Friday night, I talked about the idea that we're living 
in-between tides. A lot of people have said for the last 200 years, the sea of faith is going out in the West. You know, Christianity is retreating in the face of science and technology and materialism. But what if the sea of faith came back in again? That is the point of tides, after all. And what if the fact that the new atheism didn't work, that kind of collapsed in on itself, what if the fact that these new stories, these quasi-religious stories people are telling themselves, the fact that those are running out of steam, what if the fact that I'm seeing these secular intellectuals pointing people back towards the Christian story as a source of meaning and truth, what if all this is telling us something about that tide? Maybe the tide is just getting ready to turn. Maybe the Christian story could make sense to people again. I'm encouraged that actually that could be the case because I've met a lot of people who have become surprising converts to Christianity, people whose own story was actually made sense of by the big story of Christianity. And the question is for us as a church, will we be ready for people who are maybe looking for that story, looking for meaning and purpose? If we're going to be ready, it needs to be that we're, we're able to tell that story winsomely, creatively, imaginatively, with grace, with truth. People are looking for a story. Are we ready to share the biggest, best story of all with them? One of the most fascinating people I've met and I talk about in the book is a guy called Paul Kingsnorth. I want to finish up by telling you his story. He's a celebrated author, writer, poet, in the UK. He's got a background in environmental activism, and he's fascinating as an individual because he's kind of bounced around lots of different kind of religious pursuits in his life. He, he, as a young man, he kind of was basically a kind of Dawkins-type atheist. He sort of had this, what he would call now, kind of teenage atheism phase, but he couldn't shake the fact that he just felt the world was actually kind of enchanted in some way. He, he loved being out in nature in the forests, there was something about it that spoke of something bigger than himself. So eventually he, he became a Buddhist. He was very invested in Buddhism for many years, going on Buddhist retreats, kind of looking within to find meaning. But even that ultimately didn't satisfy. That story just didn't seem to speak of the, the grandeur of what he was in. So believe it or not, he went into Wicca. Wicca is a kind of quasi-pagan sort of mishmash of, of some sort of Christian rituals and neo-pagan rituals, and he was out in the woods and doing chanting and, and that kind of thing. Maybe it was in nature, maybe it was by worshipping nature in Wicca, he thought, that he could find that sort of satisfaction for what he was looking for. But, but even that soon kind of paled and didn't kind of make sense. One day, he was having dinner with his wife, who isn't a Christian either, and she said to him, Paul, you're going to become a Christian. And he said, what are you talking about? And she was right. Um, three years ago, Paul Kingsnorth, to the surprise of his readers and to his own surprise, announced that he had become a Christian. This took everybody by surprise, including Paul, because he says, I'd gone looking for Buddhism and I'd gone looking for Wicca because I thought they fitted with how I saw the world. But I didn't think... Christianity fitted how I saw the world at all. I didn't want to be a Christian, but I started having very strange experiences that are difficult to describe. I was having dreams 
and meeting Christians every five minutes. I used to run a writing school and I had vicars asking me to read their sermons and give them feedback. People I'd known for years suddenly told me they were Christians and I hadn't known. I felt like I was being hunted by Jesus. <laughs> this was not the plan, but it was happening. If I'd listened to this sort of thing five years ago, I'd have thought it sounded absurd. But Paul Kingsnorth eventually found the story that made sense of his story, all the stories he'd been telling himself over the years. I do tell his story in more detail in my book, but I keep bumping into more and more people like Paul Kingsnorth. In fact, if you go and listen to the Maybe God podcast, I did an interview with a guy called Martin Shaw, who has a very similar, very interesting story as an adult, having looked for, to make sense of life through storytelling, mythology, and imagination. Suddenly, the Christian story made sense of it all, to his own great surprise. I see these stories as signs that the tide is turning. The statistics are all still going in one direction. I'll admit that, okay. But I think sometimes what's happening upstream as secular intellectuals start pointing people back towards the Christian story in our meaning crisis culture, as I see people like Paul Kingsnorth suddenly finding to their own surprise the Christian story, making sense of their story, something's happening. God hasn't given up on the church. Sometimes I look around the church, and I'm sure you do too, and I think, gosh, Really? Is this the way God intends to transform the world? <laughs> because sometimes we look at ourselves and we, we just don't feel up to the job. We're so riven ourselves by politics and tribal culture and everything else. But I believe that the church is what God will use to transform the culture again. And sometimes God is not just about the rebirth of belief in God. It's about the rebirth of the church itself, being a, 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 a community that God can use. I love the story, church, because I know you have a commitment to meeting people where they are with their questions and their doubts. And I think that's what the church needs to be in our culture. If there's going to be an incoming tide of people kind of refugees from the meaning crisis, we need to be ready to meet them where they are with all their doubts and questions and brokenness. The good news is that describes all of us at some level, doesn't it? This is a place, the church, where we should be able to engage people with grace and love. It's got to look different to the culture wars out there, the cancel culture of the culture wars. This has to be a place of capacious community, countering cancel culture, if you don't mind the tongue-twisting name. It's, that's the beauty of the church. And I believe God isn't finished with us because we have a story to tell, and it is the most extraordinary, beautiful, meaningful story that can make sense of all those other stories. There's just a final quote here from G.K. Chesterton, who said, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. It feels a bit like that in the West right now, doesn't it? Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. As we see the signs that perhaps that rebirth is starting to happen. The tide may be coming in. I pray that you, the Story Church in Houston, may be people who tell that story graciously, imaginatively, creatively, help people to realize the stories they're telling themselves, the search they're on, it has an answer. There's a person at the center of it called Jesus Christ. May we pray. We thank you, Father God, that we're not bouncing around chaotically in a meaningless vacuum. 
you have created us to be part of the most wonderful story ever told. I pray that as we go from this place, we may see how we can be part of your big story told through all time and history and know that you are the God who makes sense of all our stories. In Jesus' name, amen.